Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this spooky Halloween episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline, and today's episode is called Harry Podcast and the Death Day Party. Today we will be discussing the power dynamics at Hogwarts, ghost politics, and the opening of the Chamber of Secrets. So we're obviously not releasing this episode on Halloween, but we are recording it on Halloween 2018. So I figured, you know, we'd make it a special spoopy ghost episode of the podcast. And um, for our opening discussion, I thought I would ask, would you become a ghost? Okay, so to clarify, we'll be talking about this a little bit later, but in the Harry Potter universe, um, it is implied that you have a choice about whether to become a ghost or not. We don't know exactly how this works, but you have a choice. Okay, so I would not become a ghost. Um, I think that I wouldn't become a ghost because it seems like it's really a bad kind of shadow of a life there. The I mean, it seems like it would be horrible to be, you would be able to be around the people you love, but you're not really involved in their lives anymore, and you haven't moved on to whatever there is um, in the afterlife. And I think if there is, I think in this universe, you know, even if there isn't an afterlife, or even if it's not a positive thing, um, I think I would rather move on to the next step than be kind of hanging around indefinitely. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, and I think that's a very wise position to take. However, comma, I am very afraid of death, and I have always loved the idea of living forever, and so at this point in my life, if I were to die, like, right now, I think I would definitely become a ghost, because that idea very much appeals to me, even though I think I would regret it a lot later. Um, because obviously if you've been a ghost for 500 years and you have nothing else to look forward to, that gets very boring. Um, yeah, there's no take backs. Right. There's no take backs. And that's, that's kind of the worst drawback of it for me. Like if there was an opportunity to move on later, I think I would definitely do it. Mm -hmm. But, um, as it stands, I think I would still probably choose that right now, but I think as I age more, um, and sort of become wiser about the fragility of life and like how death really is like the next step and and how that's like part of living is dying then i think i'm going to be less inclined to choose that path but for now yeah i would become a ghost dark convo but you know it is halloween so after the exposition at the beginning of the chapter when we change months over into october harry runs into nearly headless nick who is gryffindor's house ghost on the way back from Quidditch practice, and he's filthy, and Nick is upset at his rejected application to something called the Headless Hunt, and Harry asks if he can help in any way. So then Mrs. Norris, Filch's cat, notices the filthy, muddy state of Harry's robes and shoes, and then somehow alerts Filch to the scene before Harry can escape. So Filch brings Harry to his office for punishment, but before he can sentence Harry... They hear a loud bang, and Filch, thinking that Peeves has destroyed something, rushes off. While Harry's waiting in the office, he discovers a letter advertising something called a quick spell on Filch's desk, and he reads it. Um, the implication of the letter is that Filch has trouble with magic or is somehow incapable of magic. 
and Filch reveals that the crash was a valuable vanishing cabinet being destroyed, and when he sees that Harry's read his letter, he's so embarrassed that he tells Harry to leave without being punished. So nearly headless Nick, the ghost, reveals that he convinced Peeves to destroy the cabinet to get Harry out, and he asks Harry for a favor if he'll come to his 500th death day party to convince the headless hunt that Nick should be allowed to join them. Harry agrees because he feels like he owes Nick for what happened, and Ron and Hermione agree to join Harry at the party. At the party, the trio are introduced to Moaning Myrtle, and the Headless Hunt arrive and overshadow Nick's party and make him look silly. The trio then leave. Harry hears that disembodied voice again, and this time it appears to travel through stone ceilings. Eventually, they come upon the scene of an attack. On the wall is written, The Chamber of Secrets has been opened, enemies of the air, beware. And underneath the written words is the apparently lifeless body of Mrs. Norris, the cat. The trio are then discovered by a large group of students um, walking out after the Halloween feast. And Malfoy gleefully announces to everyone, you'll be next, Mudbloods. So in discussing this chapter, one of the things that we noticed uh, very quickly is how many instances there are of power dynamics between two characters or between a group of people and another group of people. So there are so many examples of this in the chapter, but I wanted to start with the first example, which is Percy and Ginny. Mm -hmm. The chapter opens with a description of the weather changing, lots of students are getting colds, and then mentions very subtly that Percy has forced Ginny, who has been looking very pale and sickly, to take Pepperup Potion, which cures the common cold. And while this may seem like totally innocent and like, yeah, something an older brother would do for a younger sister... Um, it does have, you know, some broader implications. If we've read this book before, then we know that something really is going on with Jenny and she's not just sick with the cold. Um, she is sort of under the influence of another person and partially being possessed at this point. So, um, Percy is like looking out for her. Yes. But also she probably feels in some regard, like he is overbearing and mothering her and, um, that she wants to get away from that sort of thing but he's sort of like using his power as prefect slash older brother to try to get her to behave or, or at least to um, comply with his remedy for her ailment. Yeah. And there's, I, I think it's another um, element, a small element, but a way that um, we see Ginny being controlled by so many um, people in her life. And in this case, um, older boys or, were meant so she's being controlled by the diary which is tom riddle and then in a smaller way by percy who you know she knows and you know riddle knows that this is not what she means that she doesn't have the cold but she takes it anyway because she feels like she can't explain what's happening yeah definitely and the next one is a little less direct i suppose but it's sort of the whole Slytherin Quidditch team is sort of making a power play by practicing with all of their brand new brooms. And Fred and George have observed them um, sort of by spying on them. And they report back to the team and they're like, wow, you know, these new brooms, they're really, really good. Um, I'm not sure how we're going to be able to beat them. And Malfoy's father, of course, bought the brooms for the whole team. So that's another way that his family is... Mm -hmm. power dynamic through wealth in this case mm -hmm. um through a form of bribery and uh and obviously this is making the gryffindor team feel inadequate and like 
like the rules are unfair against them and um, that they're not going to be able to overcome this obstacle. Right. So we then see Filch, the caretaker, exert power over Harry. Um, We realize in this chapter, at least partially, how little power Filch actually has in this magical world. Um, But he exerts the power that he has to punish students on Harry by, you know, being muddy and making a mess. But then he quickly realizes that Harry has power by um, information, by reading what is the letter on his desk. Um, and that is something that Harry doesn't even realize he has that power, but suddenly the dynamics have shifted completely and Filch tells him to leave and doesn't punish him at all. Right. And so that tells you, yeah, like power dynamics can change even if everyone is unaware or at least one party is unaware of the power dynamics changing. You can still feel the effects of that. So then Peeves has a couple instances where he is making power plays. The first is um, Nick convincing him to drop the vanishing cabinet onto uh, Filch's office. Um, And the other is when he embarrasses Hermione specifically, but sort of the whole trio, by telling Moaning Myrtle that they were just talking about her behind her back. And it seems like his, his way of being sort of a malicious trickster is his way of exerting power over people. And it it doesn't seem to be for, like, his own gain. It's really just to mess with people. But, like, that is his power. He can he can mess with people, and he can, like, destroy things, and he can make an, himself a nuisance, and so he does that. Mm-hmm. Right. So everyone uses the power that they have. And then um, we see some power plays happening at Nick's party. Do you want to talk about what happens with the Headless Hunt? Yeah, so... There's a couple power plays trying to be made here. First is that Nick um, does a favor for Harry and then tries to get Harry to do a favor for him in exchange. So Nick has Peeves drop the vanishing cabinet to cause a distraction. Um, it leads to Harry being set free by Filch. So Harry feels like he owes Nick one. Then Nick asks Harry to come to the death day party with him and tell Nick uh, Patrick... Uh, Delaney Podmore, who is the head of the Headless Hunt, <laughs> head of the Headless Hunt, that Nick should be part of the Headless Hunt, that he should, that they should allow him to join, um, because Nick feels like Harry Potter's name has a lot of clout, and that Patrick would listen to Harry, um, and and take his suggestion basically more seriously, and then when the party comes and Patrick arrives, um, it becomes obvious that not only is he not going to listen to Harry. Um, but that he makes his own power play when Nick is trying to give a speech about the 500th anniversary of his death and be very somber and respectful. Um, Patrick and the rest of the Headless Hunt play a game of head hockey and attract everyone else's attention to that. So they're basically just being very disrespectful at Nick's own party, um, not only by not letting him into the Headless Hunt, but by making a scene and taking everyone's attention away from Nick. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit more in this chapter about um, the ghost politics and um, what it means to die a certain way and how Nick is placed in this hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So it seems like the last um, and biggest power play that is made is um, the Chamber of Secrets is opened. Um, we know that it is opened by Ginny uh, or Tom Riddle via Ginny. Um, so that is you know, a huge amount of power and an attack has been made. 
Um, what's most interesting, I think, is that Malfoy then takes advantage of this um, to threaten um, what he calls Mudblood, so Muggleborns. And so Malfoy, we know, doesn't actually have any power in this situation. He's not the heir of Slytherin. He's not um, anything related to this, but he uses this opportunity to align himself with the cause and then say, I am threatening this group of people and that we have power over you and you're going to be hurt. Right. Sort of like making himself more important by allying himself with this cause and then trying to spread that cause's message in a sense. Um, Yeah, that's a good point. So in thinking about all of these different instances of power dynamics being written about in this chapter, what do we think of Rowling's writing style around power dynamics or what is she trying to say about power dynamics? Do you have any insight on that? I've been thinking about it. I mean, I think that what she's saying here is when we think about this in the context of the series, so this is the beginning of the second book, but we're a little bit getting more into the middle of this book. Um, And I think that Partly what she might be trying to say is that, yes, there is this magical world, and yes, we are following this character, Harry, who does have um, a strange amount of power for a child in this world. Um, Mm -hmm. However, you know, these dynamics can shift really quickly, and there's a lot of very human things about the wizards and witches in this world, even though they have magic, you know, the way that magic is used or not used, or just the way that people taunt each other like they do in our world um all interacts with each other to make complex situations so that power is not um set in stone and just based on who can do the most magic or things like that Mm -hmm. i think she has a lot of really interesting things to say about power and how it shifts and how people use it and i'm I was pulled in by this chapter's instances of the power dynamics because they're so subtle, Um, but it it draws my attention more to this issue, I think, going forward when we're going to see much more overt instances of power dynamics, much more extreme instances of power imbalances as well, and, and how those play out, and I think maybe we'll get a better sense of her thesis on power as that goes forward. So as we've alluded to before, um, ghosts are an imprint of a soul that's left behind um, in our world and does not go on to the next world. They choose to be left behind. We don't know exactly um, how this choice is made, but we do know that ghosts often come to regret this choice because as I talked about in my saying that I wouldn't choose to be a ghost is it is kind of um, a sad existence because you don't really get to do anything you did on earth except be around the living and like talk to people and talk to people yeah and um so i know there's lots of theories but what do you think about in this world when do you get to choose and do you think everyone gets to choose whether they want to be a ghost or not well it's interesting that we we don't know a lot because it it doesn't really seem to come up that much. And I feel like if I were in this world, I would ask that question of like everyone that I could Mm -hmm. because I'm so fascinated with that sort of thing. But Harry never asks another ghost like, hey, like how did you come to be a ghost? Mm -hmm. And like, when did you make that decision? Like, how does that whole thing work? Well, he he does talk to Nick about it later, right? He does, but only in the context of like, did Sirius become a ghost? Right. Um, And 
he ne- he's not curious about how it works. Mm-hmm. All he wants to know is, like, can I see my godfather again? Mm-hmm. So, like, Harry's real lack of curiosity about this astounds me. That said, um, I think it probably works the way that we think it does. Like, you die and then you go to some sort of, like, ethereal place where you have to make a choice. And it's very obvious what the choice means. If you decide to move on, then you get to go on. If you decide to not move on because you're afraid or you want to stay on Earth for whatever reason, then you become a ghost. Um, the annoying part of that is that it's irreversible. So No take backs. Once you have pierced the veil, you cannot return. Um, and yeah, I feel like that's the biggest uh, drawback for me mm-hmm. personally. It would be cool to be a ghost for like 10 years and then I feel like I'd get tired of it. Yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting. So we don't know a lot about how you become a ghost, but it is um, one of those, I think, really, whether intentional or not, um, I mean, I'm sure it's intentional, but whether she meant to address this again um, or not, I think that Rowling has some really interesting things that she does not elaborate on, and this is one of them, and I think that that is, you know, probably for a good reason because it is very kind of spiritual and interesting to speculate on, even within the context of this world. I'm always appreciative of when authors don't elaborate on certain things because it is more fun to imagine right? than to just have some rote description of it. Um, and I think it also bodes well for things like our podcast. We get to actually expound upon this stuff instead of just having some dry rote answer. Um, for that matter, another thing she never elaborates on is the existence of Peeves the Poltergeist. Mm-hmm. There, as far as we know, no other being like him on Earth. Although at one point, Fleur Delacour refers to um, him as a poltergeist and implied that if a poltergeist entered into Bobaton, he would be expelled. Mm-hmm. So there must be other poltergeists, but like, how are they made? Are they beings? Are they spirits? Are they beasts? Like, right. How are they classified by the Ministry of Magic? Are they governed by anything? And they never talk about it in like Defense Against the Dark Arts or like, is no. it a dark art? You know, is it? They seem just to be like pure creatures of malicious trickery. Yeah. But like, why are they? Why do they exist? And like, how? Yeah, his character is interesting and like famously not in the movies and was cut from Mm -hmm. the movies, but... Or I'd say infamously. I think that his character and the idea of a poltergeist is not fully developed and it's interesting to think about whether she wanted to do that or if that was intentional Mm -hmm. or what her thoughts are if if you were to ask her about what are poltergeists in this world. Because I'm sure she has an answer, but we just don't know. So we mentioned that we want to talk about ghost politics. But I think more generally, just like, what is the ghost community like? What do we know about them from reading this chapter? Well, we still don't know a lot. But what we do know is that um, how you die matters and, um, your, you know, your method of death. And it seems like people, at least in the uh, beheading community, um, <laughs> are very, um, you know, forming kind of clubs around um, this is how we died, and this is how we're going to use it to our advantage. So um, the whole point of this is that the Headless Hunt is this very fun crew of ghost bros that play head hockey uh, and can do fun stuff with their heads because they are fully beheaded. And since mm-hmm. Nick is nearly headless, um, he is not able to do that because he's partially attached, and this makes him very sad because he's not in the club. 
And he's also made the laughing stock kind of a... The other ghosts because of this, right? Mm-hmm. In a way, I think most of the Hogwarts ghosts respect Nick anyway, but I think it's easy to laugh at someone who's like mostly beheaded. He even plays it off as a joke at one point. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really like people laughing at him because of his nearly beheaded state, but like it is his nickname and it is like the thing that everyone knows about Nick is that he's nearly headless, but he's mm-hmm. not quite headless. I think the other thing that we can understand about the ghost community is like they seem sort of like a human community mm-hmm. in many in many ways. They congregate for parties, they give speeches, they invite guests, you know, they play games, um, and they like to enjoy the things that they enjoy in life, but being ghosts, not being able to eat or smell or taste anything, um, they just go for the most extreme versions of whatever those things are, maybe in the hope that the extremist versions of those things will somehow they'll be able to sense them yes, a little bit more. Yes, they have rotten food and stuff at this party to mm-hmm. see if they can... Just the most disgusting smelling things that you can imagine, most foul tasting fish and haggis and everything else, just on the off chance that maybe they'll taste it a little bit if it's like that much more intense. Um, and of course, they celebrate um, Nicholas's death day, his 500th death day, um, which is significant in this series because, and I recall when I was reading this for the first time, being really excited about the fact that we actually had a time frame for when the series takes place, because right. this is the first indication of any specific date mm-hmm. in the series. So it says on Nicholas's tombstone cake mm-hmm. uh, that he died in on October 31st, 1492. And since it says 500th death day, that means that the year that this book takes place is 1992 to 1993. And then we can infer back from that that Harry was born on July 31st, 1980, that his parents died on Halloween of 1981, um, and then everything else in the series follows from there. And I actually remember having arguments with people about this back when the series was first coming out because there are um, certain things that seem to contradict each other. For example, Mm -hmm. there was um, a specific day given um, for November 1st, 1981 when the series opens, it specifically said that that day was a Tuesday and that's impossible because that day was actually a Sunday. Mm -hmm. And so lots of people use that as evidence like, Oh no, this must've taken place in a different year, a different time because it's a Tuesday. Mm -hmm. So that means that it was this year and not that year. Um, eventually though it became canon, uh, widely accepted that it does take place in 1992 to 1993 in this book particular. Right. Um, And that Harry's birthday is in 1980. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. I never thought about that, that this was, I never knew that this was the first date mentioned to give any context. And hotly debated, yeah. Yeah, hotly debated. Mm -hmm. I don't know why, but everyone was very interested in knowing like exactly when the series took place. I remember not even, I really didn't even think about it until the seventh book. Briefly, we have some setups in this chapter that will pay off um, either really quickly or later on. So just to go over those, um, the first one we already mentioned somewhat that Ginny looks so pale, Percy forces her to have pepper up potion to cure the common cold. So we know why she looks pale later. It's because of her possession. Mm-hmm. Um, next is we have Moaning Myrtle is introduced as a character and she will become very big. So what do we notice about her so far? Well, we know that she's very insecure about herself. Um, We know that she is sort of unattractive and partially because she like makes herself unattractive, but um, Hermione really seems to dislike her because she's so whiny 
and cries all the time. And, and she's very nosy. We know that. Very nosy. Um, and gossipy as well, except that she also is very, very, very self-conscious to the point where any any slight against her is met with um, just an insane amount of sadness, an inordinate amount of sadness, really, from her. Going back into her toilet. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see that exemplified in her behavior more later, but even just um, Peeves making some offhand comment to her is enough to send her crying out of a room. Um, and obviously she, her her character is not very strong yet, but that's the dimension that we know her as right now. Right. And she is obviously a ghost, and I think arguably the ghost that has the most impact in the series and that will, you know, come back later and kind of um, has the most um, relevance to the students probably because she herself died not too long ago. 50 years ago. Oh, 50. So a while ago, but not 500. Right. So definitely more (laughs) recent than most of the ghosts in the Hogwarts castle, I'm sure. Um, and then the next one is that, uh, we've already mentioned this as well, but Filch is embarrassed that Harry's read the quick spell letter, but we don't know why that is yet. So that's something that Rowling is setting up in this chapter and it will pay off next chapter when we learn the reason for his embarrassment. And the last one that we noticed in this one is that the vanishing cabinet is destroyed in this chapter, um, which is when Nick convinces Peeves to break it um, on Filch's office. So the payoff for that is still three to four books away. Mm -hmm. Um, And we also already noticed um, at the beginning of this book, when we first get the Vanishing Cabinet introduced in Borgen and Burks. Mm -hmm. So there's uh, the other half of it. So there's a lot about the Vanishing Cabinet in this book that's very, very far ahead set up, which is really cool, I think. Yeah, this is a setup that takes place over the course of several chapters in this book and then pays off at the end of Half-Blood Prince, really, if we want to take it to the end. And clearly a setup because there's no reason for her to do all this... To be so specific about the Vanishing Cabinet being destroyed and having one in Borgen and Burks. Yeah, there must have been a plan in place for a very long time to have this series of events take place in in Half-Blood Prince. And lastly, we have basically the crux of this chapter. um, The most significant occurrence being Harry hearing the disembodied voice again and following it only to discover um, a seemingly dead Mrs. Norris beneath a set of words telling everybody that the Chamber of Secrets has been opened. So this is now the beginning of a new sort of reign of terror in the school. Everyone is confused. Everyone is panicky. No one really knows what's going on. Um, So what has actually happened? So what's actually happened at this point is that um, Tom Riddle has, uh, via Jenny, gone down to the Chamber of Secrets to release the basilisk for actually the second time. The first time was when Harry first heard the voice. Which was last chapter. Oh, no, no. Sorry, two chapters ago. Right, two chapters ago. And um, we know that she released the basilisk and um, Riddle intended for the basilisk to make an attack, but didn't happen. So this is the first time that um, it found a living being, which was Mrs. Norris. And um, Mrs. Norris looked into the eyes of the basilisk and is now stunned, but it looks like she's dead. Mm -hmm. And also uh, significant that it occurs directly outside Moaning Myrtle's bathroom, although we don't know that yet. 
Right. And um, this implies that because we know that that's where the Chamber of Secrets is, the Basilisk probably didn't get very far before finding a victim. Mm -hmm. So it probably comes slithering up out of the pipes in the bathroom. And then Mrs. Norris is like right there in the hallway outside the bathroom. Right. Um, Also important to note that there was water on the floor because Moaning Myrtle has flooded the bathroom because she is upset that Peeves was making fun of her at the death day party. Right. So all this sort of coming full circle and being important, you know, Peeves' power play making fun of her leads her to throw a fit and turn on the waterworks literally in the bathroom. Um, And then that leads to Mrs. Norris not being killed, but being petrified instead because she sees the basilisk reflection in the water. Right, right. So to clarify, because I just kind of forgot this, the if you see the basilisk's eyes through a reflection of some kind, you will be petrified instead of being killed. But if you look directly at the basilisk, then you will be killed. Right. It has to do with the magic of the basilisk's gaze. If it stares directly at you, you die. Um, But then I guess, not that much is known about basilisks, to be honest, but it, it seems like the way that it works is if it's off of a reflection or through some sort of optical lens. Um, Although we're not sure about glasses, are we? That's interesting. But through a camera lens, for example, mm-hmm. or through a ghost, uh, or off of the reflection of a mirror or water, um, you will only be petrified and not killed. Right. So as we mentioned, Draco takes power in the situation by making a big statement saying, watch out, you'll be next, Mudbloods. Obviously, Harry and the crew, since they've already made assumptions about Draco and his sort of sinister motivations in this book are going to think that Draco has somehow done this and eventually think that he is the heir of Slytherin and opened the chamber. So what do we think Draco Malfoy actually knows at this point? Like in the lore of the books, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so he probably was told by his father, as we've alluded to in earlier episodes, something about the story of the Chamber of Secrets, and his father may even have told him that the chamber might be opened again this year. Um, But certainly Lucius would have let him know about the history of the Chamber of Secrets being opened, and that it was a good thing, and that it should have gone on longer, etc., etc. That it was all Slytherin's plan to purge the school of the unworthy Muggleborns at some point in time, and that hopefully that time was coming soon, or something like that. So Malfoy knows probably about a little more than most other students about what's going on, but he probably wouldn't know, for example, that there's a basilisk being used to kill people or that the heir of Slytherin is Voldemort. Because as we see in future chapters, he's going to say things like, you know, I wish I knew who it was. I could help them. Right. Um, And Harry and Ron will be very confused by that because they think that it's him all along. Right. So he probably, you know, has gotten some hints about it. But until he sees the actual words, the Chamber of Secrets, he's like, oh, yeah, that's the thing that kills them. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to pretend I know what's happening. And he's like, this is great. This is something to celebrate. Mm -hmm. My family's been waiting for this for a long time. This is something that I fully support, ideologically speaking. So, yeah, I'm really excited about this. So I just want us to pause here and acknowledge that as a regular Hogwarts student at this time, especially as um, someone in Harry's year being 12 years old, there's a lot of creepy things that happen at Hogwarts, but this is terrifying. And this is like 
a murderer is on the loose, basically, even though people aren't actually getting murdered yet. This is terrifying. And I think that as it goes forward, thinking about the lowly other Hogwarts student in this whole situation, not Mm -hmm. having the knowledge that the trio end up having as the book goes on would be horrible and really scary. Yeah. I often think about what these books seem like from the perspective of someone who's not involved in the plot in Mm -hmm. a large extent. And it's probably really strange. And I would really honestly like to read those books someday Mm -hmm. because there's probably just like a lot of really unexplainable stuff. And like, I wonder what your average student like thinks about this and, and how they proceed with their life when there's like basically a serial killer on the loose. Like, did they try to investigate this like Harry and Ron and Hermione do? Or are they just sort of like trying to ignore it? Um, or are they doing their own things like like writing to their parents and trying mm-hmm. to get the ministry involved and all this stuff? Like, you know, I wonder, like, what what does the rest of the school do when Harry and Ron and Hermione are doing their little detective And they detective probably work? hate them. I mean, probably. I, mean, I, I would. would. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're so annoying. But I mean, as as people as characters in a book, they're great. I feel like as as real people, they would be really annoying. Yeah. Annoying classmates. And I feel like we should mention um, it is Halloween and it is the anniversary of the death of Harry's parents, who uh, would have been 32 during the day that this chapter takes place. Um, So I feel like Harry must have felt a little bit weird about going to a death day celebration on Halloween, because if he knows about like when his parents died, he'd be like, wow, like, it's also, I don't think he knows, right? It's also that, that day they died. I don't know. He may not, but I feel like he might also. There's a chance that he might. And he definitely will learn later. So. And today in 2018 would be... Would be the 37th anniversary of their death. So I feel like Halloween's got to be kind of a weird holiday for Harry. Yeah. Because on the one hand, like, yeah, it's a cool holiday. But on the other hand, it's like traumatic for him probably in a lot of ways. And every year it seems like something bad happens to Harry on Halloween. First year it was Trolls. the troll in the dungeon. This year it's the attack on Mrs. Norris. I feel like it's just going to keep being weird mm-hmm. for him. Yeah. Thank you all for listening to Harry Podcast and the Death Day Party. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter. If you have thoughts or questions about anything we've discussed today, especially the way that Rowling writes about power dynamics, please email us at contact at theharrypodcast.com. You can find out more about the show and listen to any of our episodes at www.theharrypodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for next time when we read between the lines of Chapter 9, The Writing on the Wall. I'm Madeline. And I'm David, and we'll see you next time on the Harry Podcast. Knox. Oh.